From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions, through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm, mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now, as together with you, the active deep listener, we evoke and engage in living dialogues. Welcome to the program. I'm Duncan Campbell, and with me for this particular program, I'm truly delighted to have as my guest, Harry Jaffe, who is the author of a really significant and, in my view, very excellent just-published book entitled Why Bernie Sanders Matters. A nation will not survive morally or economically when so few have so much and so many have so little. And so welcome, Harry. I'm happy to be with you. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to this. The book is uh, technically what we call an unauthorized biography. Uh, Bernie famously is very reluctant to talk about his personal life. He prefers to keep the focus on policy. And it's not that he's got anything to hide. It's just that he's really on a mission, as uh, Harry says in his book. And uh, you will find this book an excellent source of the whole life story of Bernie Sanders, and you can really see how his poetry of politics, I call it a poetry of politics because it has a really uh, deep eloquence and heartfelt feeling to it, and an authenticity uh, has emerged from his own life story. So a brief introduction about Harry himself is that Harry began his reporting career in Vermont. He was with the Rutland Herald in 1974. He came to Washington then in 1978 to work as press secretary for Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, and after which he joined the state's news service where he covered Washington for California newspapers. Since 1990, he's covered crime, politics, business, and sports for the Washingtonian magazine and now writes for them as editor-at-large. He co-authored Dream City, Race, Power, and the Decline of Washington, D.C., with WRC TV reporter Tom Sherwood, which has been just republished a year ago in 2014. And he taught journalism at Georgetown and American Universities. He lives in Washington, D.C. in Clark County with his wife and daughters. And he's won numerous awards for his investigative reporting. So, Harry, it's a really deep pleasure to be able to do this dialogue together. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, kind words for, uh, for the, the biography of Sanders. And, uh, you know, I listen to that introduction, I say, who is that guy? Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I, and I'm very, very uh, uh, pleased and honored to, to, be, uh, to be able to discuss this with you, because it's a very important subject. Well, it certainly does matter, and it matters increasingly, but this is no surprise, actually, to people that have known Bernie Sanders, such as yourself, for many years. Uh, he thrives on being underestimated. He thrives on having been unknown in many venues where he eventually then came to prominence, starting with the state governorship. He began as mayor of Burlington. He then was elected to the House of Representatives, and now he's been their senator since 2007, junior senator, along with Patrick Leahy, whom he used to work for. And so I really would like to ground this story about Bernie in your own personal story, Harry. You and I had a really 
lovely conversation prior to this last night about your own background in the book. So I'm going to ask you to just tell us a little bit to start with how you came to the journalistic profession. Think of something from your childhood. Well, I, I was the kind of kid who uh, always liked to uh, to uh, tell stories at the at the dinner table, and uh, I always liked to bring something new that my family didn't know about. Hey, did you know such and such? You know, from from childhood on. Uh, then uh, that kind of didn't really animate much of my. Uh, uh, grew, you know, growing up in teenage years. As a matter of fact, in, uh, I went to a small college in Pennsylvania. They did not have a journalism course, uh, and uh, I came out of college not learning how, to, not, not knowing how to type, literally in 1971. And I was drawn to Vermont for many of the same reasons that uh, Bernie Sanders was drawn to Vermont, um, and. Uh, I was making a living, scratching out a living, I would say, in Vermont as a photographer. And um, one evening, uh, an editor who I knew at the small local paper, the Rutland Herald, said, hey, um, we need a photographer to come and uh, develop film and print pictures one night a week. Can you do that? And I said, sure. Uh, and I walked into that newsroom at the age of about 24. 25, and it, something, something uh, chemical happened to me, and it wasn't just the, 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 the scent of the, of the chemicals in the, uh, in the dark room. I just walked into that newsroom, and I, and I, thought, and I, and I literally felt, wow, I, I'm at home. Um, and uh, it was kind of a marriage, if you will, of that, the, the kid who liked to tell, you know, fresh news at the dinner table to... Uh, you know, uh, a young man who uh, realized that he wanted to be a reporter and uh, wanted to uh, go out, cover stories, uh, take advantage of the First Amendment, um, ask politicians what they were doing and why they were doing it, and uh, take pictures to go along with it. So that's kind of a shortened way of how I became a journalist. Well, I love it. And one of the things that's very interesting about your book is even though it's called an unauthorized biography, it was simply the reticence of Bernie Sanders personally. It's one of his uh, relatively unique traits as a politician that uh, has required this to be unauthorized. And it's beautiful because uh, you have done a very uh, caring and I think independent assessment of Bernie Sanders. You're not working for his campaign. You're not particularly promoting his candidacy. But you really wanted to see who is the man who has all of a sudden risen to prominence across the country exactly. uh, on this particular mission. And the thing that's so interesting in reading this book, which I highly, highly recommend to everybody, it's very, very important for all of us in our whole history as a country to delve into his life and the events that uh, he participated in, and particularly when he was in Chicago at the university in the civil rights movement. He was born in 1941. He grew up in Brooklyn in poverty. He had his leg up, if you will, to get into the world with a lot of reading and study that he did in the basement of the University of Chicago. He became a 
a community organizer, you might say, uh, at the University for Civil Rights, and on and on it goes, and how he got to Vermont, and how this very unusual set of circumstance has brought him and his lifelong mission, the values that he's espoused since he was uh, a young man, consistently, authentically, uh, all those principles coming forward for the national discourse from a candidate that at one point in Vermont used to describe himself as the education candidate. He was there to get the dialogue going. So let's, with that background, just carry forth with your own. When you left college in 1971, you went to Vermont and you lived there for uh, six, seven years. And so you were a personal witness to what happened when Bernie came from New York to uh, Vermont after he'd been at the University of Chicago. So why don't you pick up the thread wherever you like of uh, letting us dive into his uh, childhood and move on from there. Sure. One of the reasons why I felt uh, comfortable and and almost enabled to write uh, this biography was my connection to Vermont uh, because uh, having lived there for most of the 1970s, uh, when, uh, you know, Bernard Sanders became uh, realized in a way that his that his role in life was to be a politician educator. Uh, that terrain in Vermont in the 1970s was very special and very different. Um, you know, the counterculture movement that uh, of the 1960s expressed itself in Vermont. Um, as a, uh, a, a, a lifestyle of uh, self-sufficiency, of independence, of free thought, uh, free expression. Um, you know, in the Green Mountains, uh, a lot of people from all over the country uh, came to, um, you know, find yeah, out that there was something else in life than, uh, you know, uh, getting a job and hunkering down. And, uh, and, and eking out a living. I think that people came to Vermont as searchers. Um, and I think that uh, Sanders, uh, as did I, uh, came to uh, the Vermont in the late 60s and early 70s to, as a, as, as a, uh, a place where uh, one could um, experiment, one could find community, um, one could make spiritual uh, voyages, and uh, and uh, that's what attracted him. That's what attracted me. That's what attracted you know many many thousands of of uh, people who came from New York, Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, dare I say, California and Texas. And uh, Bernie Sanders was in in that in that milieu. Um, discovered uh, that he had a um, a strong belief system. Uh, that had to do with workers' rights, that had to do with uh, income equality. Um, and uh, he was able to become the politician and leader that we see now in that very unusual and unique uh, milieu, uh, political landscape of Vermont. I don't think it could have happened anywhere else. And he says in, uh, in the book uh, that if he had... Um, tried to to follow his desire to be a politician in New York, 
where he was born, he might have made it to the state assembly. Uh, maybe. But in Vermont, because it's a small state, keep in mind that when Sanders uh, first went to Vermont uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, there were 400,000 people in the entire state. Um, he became, in 1980, the mayor of the biggest city in Vermont, Burlington. Burlington has 40,000 people in it. That's a neighborhood in, in many cities. And in that, it, because it was small and because he could contact people directly, uh, that's, that's how he became a successful politician. Couldn't have happened anywhere else. And what's very interesting about that, I think, um, to put it in historical perspective, here on KGNU on Alternative Radio just a couple of nights ago, David Barsamian uh, broadcast a speech by the media commentator and professor of journalism, Robert McChesney, where he was speaking to a group of largely younger people, uh, and he said, it's extremely important at this time in our history that our citizens actually understand and know something about our history. Uh, one of the aspects of the crisis that we're in right now as a country is the severe deterioration of our educational system at all levels. And uh, it's totally remarkable how little people of all generations, for that matter, but particularly the young and up-and-coming generation of millennials and so on, uh, know about history. Uh, it's hardly ever mentioned in mainstream media to contextualize events. We've got the 24-hour cycle where people are just making as if what happened today is so much more important than what happened yesterday that we can forget about yesterday. Let's get the breaking news for today and so on. And Robert McChesney said in his remarks about his new book, The Digital Divide Between the Generations, in this country, he said, uh, the two eras that really everybody needs to know about in the United States are the 1930s and the 1960s, because these were inflection points, if you will, where the society actually made huge transitions. And uh, particularly interesting because today we're in what is called the second or even the third gilded age where the level of economic equality uh, has deteriorated to the point where there is more economic inequality today than there was in the 1920s. And that's when people used to change their clothes three times a day if they were wealthy and everybody else was uh, going around in relatively unremarkable uh, functional clothing. Today, of course, you can be Steve Jobs and you can be in blue jeans when he was alive and a black turtleneck and you can be a multi-millionaire maybe hundreds of times over and you don't stand out necessarily the way you dress. But nonetheless, this sort of shadow government that's emerged since Citizens United has reinstated a crisis that in many people's view is much deeper even than what we had in the 30s. So all the more important to understand how things happened under Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the country in the 30s and how things happened with JFK and LBJ and the 1960s and the Vietnam protests and so on. And what I see in your book that's really very insightful in the way it deals with Bernie's personal story is that he really is a man of both eras. 
He was born in mm-hmm. 1941, and Agreed. it just occurred to me reading your book, much of what he talks about is as much about the 1930s as it is about the 1960s, when he was an early organizer in Chicago in the civil rights movement and so on. So it's a, he, he actually embodies values with a family that on his father's side was almost completely obliterated by the Holocaust uh, of that 1930s, World War II generation, post-World War II, and the lived experience of the 60s, 70s in Vermont. So let's talk a little bit about, at the beginning here, his growing up in Brooklyn and how the experience of twofold. One, uh, the fact that everyone pretty much on his father's side was murdered in the Holocaust. And so as he puts it in the book, and you quote him, I learned very early on that elections matter and that politics matters. A man named Hitler was elected, and as a result, 50 million people died, including one entire side of his family. He also grew up in poverty in Brooklyn, the son of a Polish immigrant. And so those values of hardworking people getting the short end of the stick in our economy were lived experiences for him. And when he moved eventually up to Vermont, then the aspirations of the counterculture and going back to the land and becoming independent and self-sufficient and creating values of gentleness and community and integrity and personal interactions as opposed to careerist manipulations of ambition and trying to climb the corporate ladder. Uh, Those two things really are very essential components of Bernie's personality, and he has been stating these values since he very uh, first entered politics, it's got to be over 40, 45 years ago. So um, let's talk about Absolutely. Brooklyn. So uh, let's talk about Brooklyn. Well, it, it, Brooklyn is a very interesting uh, you know, part of New York City. Uh, it's one of the five boroughs. It's, it's enormous in, in population. Um, and it's a city of its own. Uh, and it's always been carved up by uh, into very small, uh, very very ethnically defined neighborhoods. And back when Sanders was growing up in the 40s and 50s and uh, early 60s, it, he lived in a uh, small neighborhood near Flatbush called uh, Madison Park. It was largely Jewish, uh, Jewish bakeries, Jewish butchers. Uh, Jewish tailors, uh, the, uh, the, the neighborhood hangout was uh, a cafeteria, I think it was called Dubrow's, Dubrow's Cafeteria, where everybody went. And so it, it was a little village, uh, but it was a village that was, um, had a very leftist political sensibility. Uh, many of the Jews who came over from uh, Germany and um, Poland and Russia uh, brought with them uh, a fair amount of, uh, of socialist, Marxist, Trotskyist kind of a, of a grounding in the working class and, and the economy. And uh, I, I don't mean to tell you that, uh, that Bernard Sanders' family was political or, or that the discussions at the table were about, uh, you know, the working class, but... He certainly picked up in 
in that neighborhood the sensibility of the importance of the working class and, uh, and uh, you know, just kind of a leftist view of the world. Uh, his mo- he, he was mostly influenced by his brother Larry, who's eight years older than he is, uh, who was a, a socialist uh, back in, in, in his uh, high school and college days. And so that was, uh, that was his, Bernie Sanders' first introduction to politics. Uh, uh, it was Larry Sanders who brought, you know, poetry and philosophy and politics into his younger brother's life. Uh, Sanders was also very, very close to his mother, uh, and uh, she uh, was not well um, when she died uh, at an early age in her 40s, and I think that had a huge impact on Sanders. Uh, he was at her bedside. Um, he he stayed in Brooklyn uh, to be with her in her final days, and uh, only when she died did he leave Brooklyn and go to Chicago to the university. And so one of the things we should touch on very briefly is what, in a nutshell, would you say was the transformation that happened to him when he left New York and he went to the University of Chicago? Because one of the things you point out in Bernie's life is that there was something within him that was always looking for a larger experience, a larger platform. Uh, He was drawn to these historical themes uh, of um, change and fairness and justice all around the world that uh, he was reading uh, extensively in the library in the basement of the University of Chicago. Uh, And so this was a seminal period in his life, and uh, it, it shows the pattern of moving from the locality of Brooklyn, where he went to James Madison High School that was a block away, had 5,000 students. Some of the uh, famous um, alumni include Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Charles Schumer, the senator from New York. And yet he felt his Carol path. King. And Carol King, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and Bernie felt his path was to actually seek uh, another venue uh, in the University of Chicago beyond just Brooklyn College, where he'd been accepted. And so let's talk briefly about his Chicago period and then how he was drawn, ultimately, interestingly enough, through Larry, his older brother, who took him at one point to a seminar or a meeting in New York City where they talked about how beautiful land was available in Vermont at very inexpensive prices. And Bernie eventually put his very meager savings together and bought some acreage, which eventually is how he wound up in Vermont. But let's touch briefly on Chicago and what you see it contributed to his education and career. Sure. So he he comes to Chicago uh, in 1960 and 1961, and he it's his first experience uh, beyond New York. And it's a very fertile time in the country. Uh, it's the dawn of the civil rights movement. It's the beginning of the, our engagement in Vietnam. Um, and uh, there's feminism, uh, and there's free love. All of these cross-currents are, are you know, kind of blowing through Chicago, and the University of Chicago is, is a hotbed of, of counterculture, of new thinking, of, of questioning authority. And this, this becomes a, a, a place where Sanders uh, can uh, become, you know, test his own leadership, can test his own uh, activism, 
and can allow him to express all of the things he's been learning. And as he said uh, many times, uh, he didn't have an education. The most important part of his education was not in the classroom. The most important part of his education at the University of Chicago was on the streets. Um, he uh, became a, uh, a leader of the Young People's Socialist League, IPSL. Uh, he became a leader in the Congress of Racial Equality in the Civil Rights Movement. And he wound up leading one of the very first sit-ins in the entire country. Uh, the, uh, the students, the activist students found that the University of Chicago itself was discriminating against African-American students in housing. The university itself, um, by favoring white students in, in housing. And uh, as, uh, as part of his activism and leadership in the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, Bernard Sanders, uh, you know, organizes a sit-in outside of the president of University of Chicago's office. And um, uh, one day, uh, the university president walks out of the uh, elevator uh, into his office, and it's blocked. There are, you know, 30 students sitting in, sitting down, books out, studying, talking in the hallway. Uh, now, sit-ins became a staple, uh, if you will, of student activism. But one of the very first ones was led by... Uh, this Jewish kid from uh, Brooklyn named Bernie Sanders. Uh, the result of that sit-in was that the University of Chicago uh, was forced to face up to its discrimination and change its policies. But they stayed there. Those students stayed there for two weeks until, uh, in, until the university was forced to, uh, to examine itself and make a change. So that kind of uh, real-life on-the-ground activism uh, had a huge impact on Sanders. Uh, it was his first taste of leadership. It was his first taste of, of change uh, in the direction that he believed in. So I, I think that, that that's why his experience at the University of Chicago was, was crucial in his development. And one of the things I'm going to mention just as we come to the top of the hour is this. In various parts of your book, you have wonderful quotations from having done the research of writings or interviews with Bernie over the many decades of his life, where he speaks, and you catch it in his own words, of defining moments in his life. And one of those moments occurred in Chicago, where you say by the time he was 23, Sanders told Time Magazine he had been arrested and fined $25 for resisting arrest while demonstrating to desegregate public schools in Chicago. And he'd marched in Washington to protest nuclear disarmament and had a run-in with the Chicago police. Now, this incident, which... Uh, would have, interesting story. Yeah, yeah, would have provoked activists, I'm quoting, with Black Lives Matter. The Chicago Defender, a black newspaper, published a photo of a Chicago cop twisting the arm of a young black woman. Sanders told Russell Banks that he and others had made a poster with the photo to announce a demonstration against police brutality, which he was posting around campus one afternoon. Unbeknownst to me, he told Banks, a cop car was following along behind me, and as fast as I put the posters up with this photograph, uh, the cops were pulling them down. Finally, the cop car pulls up to me, and they get out and accost me. Sanders was terrified. One of the cops jabbed a finger in his face. 
Quote, it's outside agitators like you who are screwing this city up, the cop says, according to Sanders. The races got along just fine before you people came here. Close quote, shouting in Sanders' face. And then the next key paragraph. The incident made Sanders late for a political science lecture on local government. And as Sanders says, quote, I saw right then and there the difference between real life and the official version, he told Banks. And I knew I believed in one and didn't believe anymore in the other. Close quote. So an obvious, very seminal moment, very relevant today when people are calling for Rahm Emanuel, the the mayor of Chicago's resignation quite appropriately, the scandal that has just mushroomed into many, many scandals of police brutality here decades later. So with that, we're going to take a pause right now, and we're going to continue with Bernie Sanders' fascinating trajectory as he moves to Vermont and then comes eventually to the national stage. So stay with us. You've been listening to Harry Jaffe, my guest, author most recently of a really essential book that uh, is a great read. It's beautifully put together, and it's full of information that, in my case, I can say, uh, I'm sure it will be in yours, provoked and instigated memories and connections in my own life that illuminated the situation that we're all in today together in America. And so the name of the book is Why Bernie Sanders Matters, and the author is Harry Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E. So Harry, let's continue beyond Bernie's experiences in Chicago. Let's uh, now skip ahead to Vermont. We mentioned briefly that uh, his brother Larry at one point in New York City had taken him to a meeting where they talked about the beautiful, beautiful land, uh, which is the state of Vermont, and that it was possible to buy land there in the day very inexpensively. And I was one of those people when I was in Harvard Law School that spent a great deal of time up in Vermont. Actually, the my tribe, if you will, of people who were also, you know, on the cutting edge there at Harvard and the architecture school, the law school. I had students in the college and so on. We used to get in the van and just pop up there just for its beauty, its natural beauty to hang out. Uh, We had a friend of ours that uh, had a farm. Uh, It didn't have a formal commune, but, you know, it was a place where we could go and gather and be on the land and think the big thoughts (laughs) and be inspired by that whole countercultural atmosphere, which, uh, of course, was symbolized by Woodstock in 1969, and I ended up, as it turned out, uh, attending Woodstock uh, from the beginning to the end. And so I not only know that whole era, but I was part of it as well. Uh, You were part of it. Uh, You graduated from college in 1971, um, so you're a little younger than I. But that generation, we lived it, and we know what its values were. So we've talked about the other values that I experienced in college in the civil rights movement and Bernie experienced in Chicago. Let's now talk about what came into his experience when he moved to Vermont. Sure. Uh, one of the uh, little-known aspects of, of Sanders' life that I think is, is instrumental in uh, understanding his values and why he went to Vermont is uh, his experience on an Israeli kibbutz for six months um, in the early 60s, I believe it was 1963 or 64. Um, and um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that he was first uh, introduced to the idea of Vermont uh, when he was you know, in Manhattan and saw a, uh, 
uh, some kind of a um, advertisement, uh, a, a pavilion, whatever it was. That was his first uh, sense that there was this place called Vermont with Green Mountains. But he goes to the, to, to uh, Kibbutz. He didn't go there. He didn't. He didn't leave this country specifically to go to Israel. He took a uh, trip uh, abroad to uh, meet with his brother Larry, who was in um, who was in Europe. And then the two of them uh, went to Israel. Uh, they separated and each went to a different uh, kibbutz. And people have, journalists, investigators, have been trying to find out, you know, which kibbutz was it and what does that all mean. But notwithstanding that, because nobody's found it, notwithstanding where it was or what it was, it had a huge impact on, on Bernie Sanders' development at a crucial part in his life. What he saw there was a communal agrarian community that was self-sufficient, that was socialistic in that there was shared labor and shared decision-making, uh, where women were treated as, on an equal footing as men, uh, where child-rearing was taken care of by men and by women, and, uh, you know, the fruits of everyone's labor, and it was, it was hard, hand working labor was shared by everyone. Uh, he liked the self-sufficiency of growing food, harvesting food, cooking food, sharing food. Uh, that had a, a, a big impact on him, even though it was a short period of time. Shortly thereafter, he goes to Vermont and relocates uh, on a piece of property uh, out, you know, in Middlesex, which is not far from the... Uh, capital city of Montpelier, um, and he decides to stay in Vermont. Now, does he uh, live uh, on a commune per se? Uh, because there were many name-brand communes, Earth People's Park and whatnot, in, in Vermont. And I would say no, uh, but he, you could not have been in Vermont in the uh, late 60s and early 1970s Without having a a uh, without having those, that kind of living have a strong influence on you, the communal way of of uh, of, uh, of living and sharing and um, was was part and parcel. It, it, it was the air of Vermont back then. Um, and uh, you know, Bernard Sanders says, "Oh, I never lived in a commune." Well, that really doesn't matter. He he was part of that ethic. Um, and it was part of the politics as well. There was an open way of thinking uh, about politics uh, that was ingrained in the Vermont uh, way of life. So uh, Vermont is a um, Vermonters practice retail politics at a level that I don't think uh, is practiced anywhere in the country. Um, every March, uh, there is town meeting day in the state of Vermont. And at every small town and village, there's a uh, town hall. And the residents of the town who are interested, and many are in that retail form of democracy, get together and discuss everything from, you know, uh, dog collars to, uh, to sewage systems to bus, uh, you know, practices. And, and in that milieu, there's also a, uh, an openness to different kinds of politics, believe it or not. And so when Sanders 
found himself at a meeting of the Liberty Union Party in 1971 at, uh, at Goddard College in, uh, in Marshfield, Vermont, Plainfield, Vermont. Uh, he was all of a sudden at the dawn of a new political party that was based on radical uh, opposition to the Vietnam War that uh, believed in some socialist principles. Uh, and at that formative stage, when the party was kind of leaderless or looking for leaders, Sanders uh, volunteers to run for the U.S. Senate. Now, in any other state, that would be, you know, not even a footnote. It would be kind of in the community news. But Vermont is so small and so open to political thought and political organizing that the Liberty Union became a, um, immediately became a factor. And the press and the community at large treated the Liberty Union Party in its formative stages as a real uh, part of the political dialogue. And so Sanders all of a sudden finds himself on radio and TV and in the newspapers. Um, uh, and he... That's when he first thought of himself as an educator as opposed to a politician. He actually said, and I quote in the book, uh, he says, I'm not a politician, I'm an educator. Um, he runs for four, he runs four elections, and he doesn't ever gets more than, you know, two, four, six percent of the vote. He runs for senator, he runs for governor, uh, and, but he, two things happen. Um, he uh, becomes somewhat of a staple in the political conversation of the state. He develops what's called name recognition, which is essential in, in, the, in the practice of politics. He no longer is this odd-looking uh, Jewish guy from Brooklyn. He's Bernie. And he talks funny. He's a radical, but he's Bernie. And um, he... Um, he also, uh, you know, realizes that uh, that he has the ability to excite a crowd. He has a charismatic way of delivering his uh, his point of view. Uh, so that was the, in the early 1970s and the mid 1970s. Even though he was not elected to anything, uh, a politician was born, and a brand was begun. And this, I think, is a message that you go into in great, wonderful uh, storytelling richness in your book. And uh, you. I, I want to really invite people to read it because what you see is an evolution, a very natural evolution of someone who is unique in the sense that his values and principles that were instilled in him and in his experience as a young man uh, are things that he has remained completely consistent with during his career as a politician, which is spanned now, if you include the time that he was mayor of Burlington uh, for four terms and then his uh, stint in uh, the U.S. Congress as a House of Representatives member and now senator. It goes back for four decades. And I say he's unique in the sense that his authenticity is that he has all always expressed the same deep vision and values, which are essentially populist. As you've pointed out, he is not a classical socialist. 
He calls himself a democratic socialist, but really he is in the deep populist tradition uh, that goes back to the late 19th century and early part of 20th century in America, which stood up for economic justice, social justice, uh, and a vision of America where everyone could get a fair shake and everyone could prosper together. And uh, these themes of economic inequality and the depredations of the bankers, which were very alive in Franklin Roosevelt's time in the 30. And he denounced them, like Franklin Roosevelt in his first inaugural address said, we have always known that greed is bad morality. And now we also know that it is bad economics. Mm-hmm. And, and I fully expected Barack Obama to quote that in his first inaugural address, and he did not. And everything went downhill from there as far as this aspect of the economic inequality crisis that's worldwide right now, but it's no more desperate than in the United States. And it could actually undo the whole project, if you will, of democratic society. Jimmy Carter, two years ago, when foreign visitors came to him, said privately that the United States is no longer a democracy. It's a plutocracy. And so we know that. And the question is, how do we start talking about that out loud? And Bernie is the first politician to actually talk about that out loud and directly and authentically on the national stage. So I'm going to say two or three things from your book that really highlight this. Early on in the book, You talk about how Bernie realized that his message to get out on the presidential scale had to go through social media and to really reach the younger generation in particular. I personally have been advocating the elder youth ethical dialogue that Eric Erickson, the great psychological historian, one I knew as a professor at Harvard, uh, he wrote about in 1963. And he said, the ethical dialogue, intergenerational, is essential for any civilization if it's going to endure. And that's a mutually respectful dialogue, mutual contributions between young people who have an inherent sense of fairness and yearning for justice, sometimes called idealism, and elders who have a lived life experience uh, uh, who can be rejuvenated by the constantly renewing vision of fairness, which is the aspiration of the society and the calling out of where it's not occurring that comes from young people and elders that have been living that life like I have, like you have, like Bernie has for decades and uh, sharing our lived experience as well as the same values. And it makes uh, a critical enlivening contribution and is to the essence, uh, as Eric Erickson said, of a vital civilization without which it cannot endure. And so what we see in our mainstream media is the utter, total, complete absence of any elder youth dialogue at all. They're screened off from the national media. And as a result, the phenomenon of Bernie, I think, is unique in my lifetime of having an elder, 74 years old, but who has espoused these same values that I lived when I was in the 60s, you know, right into national presidential promise. So now we talk about the millennials and the digital divide and their mastery of social media. And right at the beginning, you talk about how Bernie was approached by an organization called Revolution Messaging, which did all the social media for Barack Obama in his campaign. And the CEO of Revolution Messaging, Scott Goldstein, said, we sought out Bernie. And, quote, like a lot of Obama supporters, 
We were looking for a candidate with a track record of doing the right thing, even if it meant taking on Wall Street billionaires and other powerful interests, a candidate who could inspire a movement, close quote. And this is what defines Bernie. Bernie is in it to win, but he knows, and he says repeatedly, that I have to be the catalyst of a movement. No person can do this alone. On the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, the unparalleled self-referential egoism of Donald Trump, who's going to do it all for us because he's the smartest man in the world with the best memory and so on and so forth. So, yeah. uh, So now I want to read something else here, and then I'm going to come back to you, which is that when Bernie eventually decides that he was maybe going to run for president back in 2013. He gathered his close people around him, and he asked their advice, and he pondered it, and he wondered if, you know, that would be the ultimate stage that he could take all of these principles and values to a national stage because he realized that if real change is going to happen here, it's not going to happen even under Obama administration unless there is some kind of nonviolent political revolution, he calls it, of millions of people coming to Washington, getting to the streets and saying, we're not going to take this anymore. We're suffering. We're suffering terribly. And the people in Washington, D.C. are just puppets of the billionaires, which now we all know. We all know that from the 1% movement, which Adbusters came out with that phrase, and it was picked up on by the former chief economist of the World Bank. And uh, that's 15 years after Bernie, that was in 2011, 15 years after Bernie used that in one of his campaigns in Vermont. Now, here's the story I want to tell, is that you tell this in your book, that on the morning of April 18, 2015, that's like nine months ago, Bernie and his wife, Jane, were still contemplating whether or not Bernie should make a run at the presidency and offer an alternative to the establishment candidate Hillary Clinton and to get out this meme of inequality as well as climate change and all the other things attendant upon it, but things that Bernie had been talking about for 40 years. And so they were having breakfast at Denny's in South Burlington, and the conversation turned once again to whether Sanders should run or not. Jane presented her concerns, worried about the energy it would take, the rigors of campaigning, the hassle of raising money, the effect on their personal lives. And Sanders began making his case for running. And as they were talking, a disabled veteran approached their table in Denny's. I don't mean to interrupt, he said, according to Jane, but I hear you are considering running for president. I hope you do. He said... He himself, as a veteran, had tried to get his VA benefits for 30 years with no success. Then he called Sanders' office, and Sanders at that point was the chairman of the Veterans Administration Committee in the Senate. He called Sanders' office for assistance, and Sanders' staff had helped him navigate the bureaucracy and unlock the funds. You have changed my life, he said to Sanders, and if you run for president, I think that would be the best thing for the country. I'll do anything for you. End of quote. He then thanked the couple and excused himself. At that point, Jane said, I give up. You're right, Bernie. We have to do this. So I thought that was a really uh, wonderful, a seminal story because Bernie then said, well, better to show up than give up. So let's jump now in our waning moments to what's now happening. I'm just going to lead in by saying that yesterday on CNN, the breaking news was that Bernie has now overcome Hillary Clinton's lead in Iowa and, according to the poll yesterday, was leading her in Iowa 51 percent to 43 percent. 
don't know what's happening today. But just yesterday, and you were the one that told me about this, Bernie Sanders began to use a new ad called America using the song from Simon and Garfunkel. And I just have to say that that was from 1968, the Simon and Garfunkel song. It's, it's an ad that is transcending all political ads that I have ever seen. And I just invite the audience, if you don't know about this, to Google Bernie Sanders uses Simon and Garfunkel America or ad in Iowa, and it's going to be in New Hampshire. So let's talk about that ad and why it is so emblematic of the uniqueness of this campaign, whatever the outcome. Well, it is a striking departure from the political advertising that we as Americans are used to. Uh, it, uh, it, it's very, very inspirational. It's very, very unifying. It, uh, there, there, there is no voiceover. It's just the Simon and Garfunkel song and images of Americans on farms and in cities. Uh, there are a couple snapshots of Sanders at, a, at rallies, but it's, it's mostly snapshots rhythmic snapshots of, uh, of Sanders supporters, of course, um, and the American flag. And in a way, you know, Sanders is, is wrapping himself in uh, the, the, the bedrock values of, uh, of rural America, of uh, kids and parents and, uh, and, and his supporters and the American flag. I mean, let's, let's, not lose sight of the fact that Bernie Sanders is a, is a professional politician, and, and uh, you know, notwithstanding all of his uh, his growth and his and his uh, vision uh, and his authenticity, the guy is also a damn good politician. And so this ad is specifically designed to basically vault over the the the, the he said she said and attack ads and prove it the kind of the, the knife fighting, if you will, of, of, of politics, and, 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 and raise the level of, of thought and consciousness to who are we, uh, what's important to us, you know, we, we, are, uh, we, we can be a nation of people that actually come together and support one another, uh, as opposed to fight over pennies. So uh, that, uh, that ad does a number of things, but I think that, that one of the, the uh, essential aspects of uh, what I learned from researching Sanders' uh, past and his growth uh, and putting that in the context of this current campaign is that Sanders developed his uh, fundamental worldview in, the, in his growing, wrenching uh, times uh, in, in uh, Chicago and in Vermont, and uh, with the roots in, in Brooklyn, and and he came. He, he developed a sense of of right and wrong, of of, of the the, uh, the the equitable distribution of wealth, uh, the the need for uh, equal opportunity, um, and uh, his his clear. Um, view of the world as being too much in the thrall of the wealthy. And once he developed that in the 1970s, he never changed. And, and the other thing that, that I learned is that once, once you become successful 
in a in a state like Vermont uh, as a an unmistakably Brooklyn-born uh, you know leftist Jewish guy uh, who never tried to change. Once he realized that he would be accepted and he would be validated in Vermont, then why should he ever have to change again? And why, can't, why couldn't he be that person, that authentic person, for the rest of his life, no matter whether he was running for, uh, for governor, uh, the Congress, the Senate, or the White House? And so we as Americans are used to seeing politicians who bend with the wind. They, they take a poll, they stick their finger in the wind, and then they decide what they're going to be that day. And Sanders doesn't have a – he hates polls. He doesn't stick his finger in the wind. He wakes up in the morning, and he's the same person he was the day before and the year before and the decade before, and that's the same person that he's going to present to the United States of America and like it or leave it. Uh, so that basic authenticity – you must contrast, we have to contrast, at this moment, with uh, Hillary Clinton, um, who, you know, you can't learn authenticity. You can't buy authenticity. You can't, you know, be, you know, have media coaches telling you to be authentic. You either are or you are not. Sanders is. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying in any partisan way that I have a preference politically, but I do know that uh, Sanders is uh, uh, utterly authentic, and uh, Hillary Clinton, as, as capable and experienced and, and, uh, and well-meaning as she is, doesn't have that authenticity. Um, Donald Trump, I'm like, come on, the guy was a Democrat five years ago. Uh, he, he certainly changes with, with, uh, with, with the wind. We've just come suddenly to the end of our time together, and I want to just thank you for your eloquence, not only here but in your book, and to say thank that you. this will not be the last time we'll be speaking with Harry. You can tune into my Living Dialogues programs. We'll have Harry on there at some point. In You're the very kind, weeks. and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great, and I just have to say, and it means that we can ourselves finally be authentic in a public space. This invitation from Bernie's personality as a candidate is an invitation to the country and to each of us to, to be authentic, to just be who we really are and go with whatever values we really feel deep in our heart and soul. And so for this illumination of Bernie's life, I want to thank you again very much. Harry Jaffe, the book is entitled... Why Bernie Sanders Matters. It's on bookstands now. And once again, Harry, thank you so much. It's been great. My, my thanks go to you and your listeners. I appreciate it. I'm Duncan Campbell. You're warmly invited to join us again next week on Living Dialogues. And if you'd like to listen freely to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers, you can go to www.kgnu.org forward slash living dialogues. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S. And for additional dialogues, you can also Google Duncan Campbell, the best in new paradigm thinking, and click on the Living Dialogues icon. Thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program. All the very best.